Hey, this is Rob Orman. I am a physician coach and host of the Stimulus Podcast, what you're about to hear. This show focuses on stories, strategies, tactics, or sometimes just information that I think will help you thrive in your career and life. If you want to dive deeper, if you are feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, or have any kind of challenge in your career that you're finding it hard to navigate, one-on-one coaching might be just what you're looking for. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician, and now as a full-time physician coach, my job is to help you get where you want to be. You can learn more at my website, roborman.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the show. Welcome to the Stimulus Podcast. Our guest is someone who I have been trying to have on Stimulus for, I don't know how long, a year, at least a year. And that is Dr. Kim Bombach, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Ohio State University. She is the assistant director of the Keele Resident Wellness Endowment. Director of the endowment, I'm saying. Kim, <laughs> I love it. The stars have aligned and here we are at long last. What a delight. What a delight to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. I'm going to have to find you one of those the sweatshirts or hats or something. I try not to be obnoxious about it. I say the the really, really quiet. (laughs) Yeah. So listeners, what Kim is referencing is there is a sweatshirt somewhere out there that just says the, since when people talk about Ohio State University, they say the Ohio State University, and it just becomes the, I'm trying to get one myself. So (laughs) I think that they are, they're, they're kind of rare now, but our topic today is compassion fatigue. What it is, what it looks like, and most importantly, or I don't know, most importantly, but equally important, what to do about it. And for longtime listeners of the show, you know that this is, this is something we have focused on in several episodes, at least compassion itself, not necessarily fatigue. Most specifically, our conversations with Dr. Barry Curzon, who is the Dalai Lama's personal physician, who Really, from his perspective, the prescription for clinicians, for healthcare workers, for patients, it's compassion. Compassion for patients, compassion for yourself, compassion for each other. But, you know, sometimes it feels, that's a nice prescription, but it feels sometimes like the well runneth dry. Absolutely. You know, I got interested in compassion fatigue as a topic because I started to experience it, particularly in the transition from resident to attending. And resident well-being has always been an interest of mine and an academic interest, but I started to really feel this profound emotional and physical exhaustion stemming from the exposure to the suffering of others. And I want you to think about this as the cost of caring for others who are suffering. It's also called secondary traumatic stress. So we know compassion is the awareness of others' distress coupled with that desire to alleviate that distress. And it's kind of like a muscle. So it can atrophy if you don't use it. It can strengthen with appropriate use and it can fail to carry the load when you overuse it. So It's not a single insult. That's another thing I want to emphasize. It's a cumulative process of repeated trauma. So it can ultimately lead to a diminished ability to manifest that empathy. That's that's the natural progression of compassion is empathy for other humans and understanding their experience. So that becomes different from your baseline. 
And this doesn't mean you're not a compassionate person at heart. So if anything, it occurs to the people who have a high ability to experience compassion. So I want you to think about your typical day in the life of the emergency physician. You walk into your chef, there's a full waiting room full of people suffering and asking for help. Your patients are distressed due to prolonged boarding and you maybe lead a code and your patient doesn't make it. You comfort your colleagues after that code. That's a lot of compassion that you're giving. And really, it can harm you in a lot of ways. And I think that when you talk about compassion, I think there's there's a couple of things we need to tease out. We need to tease out some definitions. But also, when you're talking about this muscle, about mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a distinction to make here. When you evoke or you generate or you embrace compassion in that moment, I am not sure that that specific thing, that having compassion leads to fatiguing of compassion. I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think that like if you do a meta meditation, like a loving kindness Mm. meditation or a Tonglen meditation where you are generating this, it builds that muscle so that that's more of a natural state for you rather than, you know, it's a limited resource of having compassion. I think it's other things I suspect as we'll get to that fatigue your ability to really get to that place. What do you think on that? Two thoughts. One, is maybe the term empathy fatigue more appropriate in the sense of stepping into another person's shoes repeatedly and taking on their suffering and experiencing their emotion Mm. can provoke. A second thought is often when I experience compassion fatigue, it's coupled with feeling limited in my ability to act. So the boarding, the wait times, I know they're... 20 patients that need to be seen in the in the waiting room, but I don't have a bed or a nurse to grab medications or things like that that limit my ability to address what needs to be done as fast as possible. So you may feel ineffective and unable to meet the needs of the other person. So I I experience fatigue in that area. Okay. So you're you're getting to something really just core to all of this that I, I wanna I wanna get to later as far as how to how to mitigate this. You're getting into really how do you integrate trauma in your life? Mm. And right, all of these, all of these moments are accumulated trauma. And two things which are essential to integrating it properly, you know, I mean, you can, it's gonna come in regardless, are action or agency and community or so isolation versus community. And what you're talking about right there is having lack of agency, you know, and you feel Mm kind of hopeless in it. It's kind of, we're not even, I mean, we're not even making a difference here. It's just ridiculous, but we will get to that. We've both said compassion and empathy. And we actually get a lot of questions. We get emails about this, you know, shouldn't I have the empathy? Shouldn't I have the compassion? And the definitions have been said, but I really want to get this down, get this super clear for what we're talking about when we distinguish the two. So we're talking about compassion. And I'll tell you, I, I'm pulling up the dictionary here. Believe it or not, we're, we're opening the dictionary. So <laughs> compassion, and this is a great, I don't know what dictionary this is from, but you know, some online thing. I feel uh, like you should just say Webster's. That's <laughs> Or the OED. Isn't the OED where you're supposed to go? The Oxford oh, English Dictionary. Oh, the yeah, you're right. Set. That's the best yes. one. That's oh, my dictionary yes. of choice. OED, OED governor. Oh, yes. All right. So 
compassion, as you said, I think this might've been the definition used, deep awareness of the suffering of another accompanied by the wish to relieve it. So you're aware and you wish to relieve it. As opposed to sympathy, which would be maybe the awareness and the pity that you feel without accompanied action. Yes, compassion versus sympathy. And then like sympathy, is it usually it's like sympathy and empathy are the things that are mm. kind of like, because they sound so, so yeah. like, but, I, but I really, I love how you, you paired those two, compassion versus sympathy. And actually, I want to tell you about sympathy in a second. So th- with compassion, I think about it, this is something I learned from Barry Curzon, what we all learned from Barry Curzon. He said, look, if you can't get there, just say this to yourself, even in your mind, just as I want to be happy and well, so do I want this person to be happy and well. So that's compassion. Contrasted with empathy, which as, as you're talking about, put I think you said putting yourself in the shoes of the other. So opening up the, uh, the OED, I don't, surely it's not, but <laughs> identification. So identification of the thoughts, feelings, and state of the other person. So it's like, you know, going back to Barry Curzon says that compassion is that half step back from empathy. They're definitely related, mm-hmm. but one's immersive and one is, I don't know, what would, not, it's not immersive. It is, I guess it would be more discerning than fully enmeshed. Yeah. I really like that definition. All right. I got to tell you some, I got sorry, sorry about the sympathy. Since, you know, since our podcast came, we can, we, we get to tell the stories. <laughs> All right. So I was, I was at a friend's wedding. This is 24 years ago. I was at a friend's wedding in the Cayman Islands. And I was super protective of my feet the whole time. I was like, I do not want to step on a sea urchin. I do not. And so I was wearing booties and all this stuff. And one day I just walked a couple feet into the ocean. I got a freaking sea urchin spine on my foot, pulled it out. I got back to Portland and I had this little thing. It was deep. I could see it was deep under there and I couldn't dig it out. And so my partner, Dr. Boots, his nickname, he had this response where he would laugh in the suffering of others. And so he, he had, but he had, this is going to go back to sympathy. And so he started digging this thing out. And this was before the days when we could do like the great ultrasound guided nerve blocks and all that. So I guess we could do yeah. them, but nobody knew how to do them. So it, it hurt. It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. You know, getting the, it was on my heel, heel anesthesia. And he's digging this thing out. Eventually he got it out. But I had like three pillows over my head and I was just like screaming into the pillows and he's laughing. And I pause and I look back at him and he says, you have all of the sympathy I can muster. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Like, oh, Boots, such a great line. So compassion fatigue, it's from exposure to the suffering of others, right? Repeated exposure. And, you know, and that also overlies with moral injury and, and, mm-hmm. and, and all of this. But I think that in emergency medicine, there's an additional factor. And it's kind of this sub-story or this really quiet story in emergency medicine that can contribute to this. And I cannot wait to hear your take because not only are you a clinician seeing patients, you're also teaching residents and you're part of the wellness initiative. So Scott Weingart refers to this as the failed paradigm of emergency medicine. And he's, I've heard him get in debates and arguments with people about this, but the more I hear it and the more I, I work with clients on this, I think that it's true. And, and I'm bringing this up because 
I think that a really stealth contributor to compassion fatigue is the message that we get when we are trainees, either overtly or tacitly. And that is that we are emergency physicians. We treat, I'm putting up the air quotes, emergencies. Mm -hmm. Our job is to recognize and treat acute life-threatening conditions. That's our job. That's the name of the job, baby. That's literally our board certification. First word, emergency. And maybe early on, emergency medicine was that. And when I was very early in my training in 95, it was kind of like that. Very different 20 years later. It was just, just different. You mean a more robust urgency, or do you mean seeing more true emergencies versus urgencies or primary care? Is that what you're referring yeah, to? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just kind of, oh yeah, this is, this is an emergency. Like this person mm -hmm. could truly decompensate or they need immediate medical attention for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that this mindset still persists. The mindset that that is actually the job still persists. And that's the expectation. It's a great aspiration, but I think it's still an expectation. And it leads to a lot of frustration because what's happening now is what you just said, is that you're just inundated with the overwhelming majority of the patients that you see are not emergencies, true emergencies. Sometimes it's a social situation that gets placed in your lap. You might say, if you're an emergency physician, dumped in your lap. Or somebody just didn't want to deal with it. And, and they said, you do it. You figure it out. Maybe it's a waiting room full of patients with colds. And at the end of the day, the week, the month, the year, part of you is thinking, this is not what I signed up for. It's not hard taking care of somebody with a cold. It's just, you know, it's a couple minutes. It's reassurance. It's making sure they don't have meningitis or you know, severe yeah. COVID or something. It can even be kind of interesting trying to figure out if there's a more serious disease at play. But I think there's an aspect that what do you see, especially when you're like the, you know, when you're working all by yourself, what do you see when there's a waiting room full of colds is you see extra work for you because you have to do charts on all of them. You see potentially 50 conversations that you have to have about why they don't need antibiotics when they are asking for them, 50 work notes, 50 energy expenditures that they would have been just fine at home. So the real paradigm of emergency medicine is truly, now it is truly, it used to be this sort of, but now it is anyone, anything, anytime. And emergency medicine has become, unfortunately, I mean, it's great that there's a safety net, but you know, from its original intent, the de facto primary care provider and every care provider for society. Not that we're doing lipid checks or surgery or long-term diabetes management, but there is no filter for what comes in. And on the surface, you might think, well, of course, yes, anyone, anything, anytime, that's me. But at the core, when it's operationalized and you're actually having to do it, I think that that can strike at your identity, that story of who you're telling yourself that you are professionally. Not to mention, you've got this kind of identity insult. It's giving you a bunch of extra things to do. Contrary, to say the same clinician was working in an urgent care. And a lot of you know emergency docs work, both urgent care and emergency medicine. If you're working in urgent care and you see 50 patients with colds that day, fine. That's what I'm doing in this urgent care. You know, I'm treating mm. urgencies. In an ideal system, 
that's where the patients go. They're in their primary care providers. This frustration of identity and work, like all of these little insults, little bits of trauma, I think are a perfect recipe for fatigue of that compassion. What do you think? Yeah. Coupled with expectations of productivity Mm. related to those 50 patients, you're expected to have those charts done in a timely manner, a customer service element. And ultimately, I think this has a lot to do with cognitive load. We know that throughout human history, you may only meet a couple hundred people in your entire lifetime. And now you probably meet a couple hundred people in the span of a few days. That's the evolutionary history of mankind. So meeting all these new people, and even if they have a cold, I sometimes experience their frustration or their sadness at missing, you know, they tell you about the event they missed or their fear that they have pneumonia. All these things go into the conversation and it's it's a set of shoes that you're stepping into, even if it's not a true emergency. And I will be the first to admit that sometimes that cynicism does arise in me of it not being a true emergency. And it often stems from a place of feeling inundated or experiencing a high cognitive load or lack of fulfillment that would come from fixing something or a quick fix for their problem or or critical care that is deeply gratifying because it's exciting or impactful. But yeah, so I guess so I guess what I'm saying in summary is I can definitely relate to that feeling. I can see how this would be the perfect milieu for compassion fatigue. But I also want to shift our mindset to seeing all of those patients as suffering. And emergency medicine, I don't think we can limit ourselves to emergencies because it's not pragmatic. It's not what we see. It's probably, what, 10% emergencies. I think that expanding that definition of what the emergency physician is and that in taking pride in also treating those urgencies and primary care needs that somebody's got to do. I think that can be a source of pride too. Did you, uh, that was such a beautiful soliloquy. Did you <laughs> use the word pragmatic in there? I think you might've said that. Yeah. Th- when you said that, I just felt a little, I don't know, a little spark of positive voltage that if you can shift your expectation from it's only emergencies to it's an open door for the world and whatever <laughs> comes in. And because, you know, people are going to follow the path of least resistance. So they're going to come to you and they're going to see you for whatever. They also don't have the filter oftentimes to understand where they should go for this thing to say, oh, I'll go see this. Oh yeah. Co- this doctor. They're prudent lay people. They have a cough and they're afraid. Yes. They really might not know that it's bronchitis. As we're unpacking this experience of what it's like to work in this environment with the expectation, if it's your expectation that you're only going to see this one type of patient, it 
only is going to have one result and it's going to be frustration. And yeah, okay, compassion fatigue is going to be there on the path, like a little mile marker, you know, a little, uh, just kind of wave to it as you're walking by. <laughs> but it, you're going to very quickly get to anger. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to be angry. You're going to be angry at the situation. You're going to be angry at the patients. Your compassion will be, it's not going to be compassion. It's going to be the opposite, the total end of the bell curve. You may feel angry. You may depersonalize. For me, I start to notice cynicism. I'm generally an optimistic person. And if a little cynic critic, it starts to sneak into my interactions, then I know that that's a yellow flag. Physical symptoms, fatigues, headaches, not being able to sleep, generally the sense that you can't extend anymore. We think of ourselves in emergency medicine as being infinitely expandable. When the bolus comes in, we're going to be able to meet those patients. But when you feel like you can't extend in the compassion realm and you hear something sad and it doesn't stir anything in you, that's a sign. I want to dig into something you just said. You mentioned depersonalization. And Mm -hmm. so now you're getting into burnout realm. Mm -hmm. And how do you distinguish compassion fatigue from burnout? Yeah. So there's a lot of overlap. Burnout has a narrow definition based on Maslach's three dimensions. So it's emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced personal accomplishment. So the emotional exhaustion components and depersonalization are definitely have overlap with compassion fatigue, but it can also come from factors in the external environment, not necessarily related to compassion or empathy. So for example, you have an increased administrative burden that's really hampering your autonomy. So you have the sensation that you're not effective. What you do doesn't matter. That's not necessarily related to compassion, but does represent burnout. So the bottom line is it's similar, but I think burnout can come from a lot of external sources. We know they're intimately related. And in one study of PEMDOCs, burnout score was the most significant determinant of compassion fatigue. So when you're considering compassion fatigue, burnout needs to be part of the conversation. I want to pull out a couple of the things that you said. So the core core features of burnout. So so it's work-related, you're getting the admin mm-hmm. stuff. So I mean, it doesn't have to be work-related because you can be burned out from other things. But in this realm, we're talking about work-related syndrome, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, or detachment, reduced sense of personal accomplishment. That's the actual definition that you see bandied about. But how do emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, detachment manifest? <laughs> One way is you got no compassion. You feel used up. Your emotional tank is empty. You got nothing left to give. You ask mm-hmm. yourself, you know, you're thinking about all those boarded patients. I mean, am I really making a difference? Or to the extreme, we're talking about anger. I mean, I, I have heard many docs say when they're talking about some of these patients' interactions, especially during COVID, I, I would heard this a lot. I hate these people. It was hate. Ooh. I hate these people. And that is not a recipe for thriving mm-hmm. in a career. That's not even a recipe for thriving in a day or even a minute to feel no. hate for the people that you went into the job to care for and think like, well, now, now they're coming in with some weird conspiracy theory and accusing you of all these kinds of things. It's like, oh, 
That's a lot. I think it is important to acknowledge the emotional response that we sometimes have to patients or to the experiences that they're having. But contempt, hate, that is a step further from frustration or maybe annoyance. And hopefully those feelings are towards the situation and not the individual. I've also heard statements like that. That would be somebody I'm checking in with. I think that's a really important thing you said. Checking in with our colleagues when we see that there's some distress is just so vital. You know, I mean, all, mm-hmm. we know that, you know, physicians internalize so much. We are the Lone Rangers, like Superman or Superwoman. We get it all done, the Lone Wolf, and get so isolated in all this. And just reaching out like, hey, how, how's it going? It cannot be overstated how important that is. I have never seen quantitative data on this, but qualitatively, when you hear the story of of folks who are really in distress and they have that hand reached out, say, hey, how you doing? Let's go hang out. Let's just just talk. What's going on? It makes a massive impact and is sometimes just the turning point that somebody needs. Absolutely. And I think we have to come from a place of understanding that Compassion fatigue may be a relapsing, remitting disease. Oh, yeah. Good one. Good um, one. So it's something that we'll experience to various degrees on different days, some days more acutely than others, some phases of our life more acutely than others. And we deserve self-compassion. Our colleagues deserve compassion. And it's something that we cope with, like psoriasis. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So, I don't know. That's- that's a call back to psoriasis. All right. So I was like, you, how am I going to work psoriasis in here? Here's my end. There it is. There it is. You know, when you're talking about the relapsing and remitting us, I was having a conversation with someone who was hanging out in an emergency department for a few days, had never spent time beyond mm-hmm. being a patient. And this was basically, we're, here we are getting a completely fresh look at what's happening. And I'm talking hanging out for shifts, like shift after mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. And there were all of these beautiful things like teamwork and calmness in the storm and what was happening that, you know, and, and just kind of, wow, I didn't realize that this was happening with humanity <laughs> that people were yeah. like this. And, and one thing they, they mentioned though, that was, I think, germane to our conversation. And I bring this up just as could this be the canary in the coal mine that you're getting to this point? They noticed a pattern of speech that some of the staff used towards some patients, but not others. And it was repeatedly so, and the pattern was consistent. So towards those who were, let's say, citizens, or in the, I mean, I'm sorry, listeners who are not in emergency medicine, <laughs> there are these terms that are used and may refer to you as a patient, but good or bad, but we're citizens. And that's really someone who is employed, doesn't have to be employed, but it's kind of take care of themselves and is integrated in society and presenting with an acute medical problem is invested in having it get better or, or has their families with them so that there's going to be some accountability for what's said. So the conversation's very respectful, sounded mm. compassionate, but toward many homeless, drug addicts, mental health patients, Demented elderly patients without family, multiple visitations, such as someone you say is a frequent flyer, 
Mm -hmm. Is that term still used, frequent flyer? I think it's still used. Yeah, frequent flyer. The speech and attitude were consistently unkind, demeaning, and disrespectful. And now this was not from everyone, but from certain individuals, this pattern was repeated. And they, they could see this sometimes like people in rooms right next to the other, like here is the, here's the CEO of this company. Like, oh yes, you know, we're you know, treating very nicely versus, and here's a, a homeless patient with an infected foot. Very different. You and I both know this is true. We have probably been in this situation ourselves. I know that I have been in this state before and been like, whoa, what is going on here? And I think that this happens, one, modeling, because there's social proof that this happens. That people hear this, they see it's like, oh, that this is okay. And just fatigue, fatigue, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that we've been talking about just builds up. And you keep seeing the, like you were talking about in the beginning of you just keep seeing these same things over and over and over and you just get sick of it. You get sick of them. Yet, you know that your job is to help people in need. And I think that this is a sign truly of the tank of compassion emptying. Or I don't know if it's actually the tank of compassion empties because I think that the tank is always there. I think it's just the ability to evoke it, to have that mental and emotional energy to bring it up. So that, so I, I just kind of coming out of nowhere. I I see that it's not even a parable. That's a story happening right now as a sign that, oh yeah, you know, if you notice that you do this, just take a look, take a moment, lean into it. What's going on? Why is that happening? Because it doesn't cost anything extra for you to speak to people in the same respectful way it costs you more in the long term. Oh, I didn't even think about that. It costs you more in the long term to speak to someone disrespectfully. Oh yeah, I mean, probably the harm to yourself, the negative feedback loop, and not even considering the patient, but just the. I'm trying to think how to say that, but the detriment to your own identity when you behave in that way. You were talking in the in the beginning of the show about burnout inventory, and th- that has actually been reduced down to two questions. Do I feel burnt out from my current work? And do I feel more callous towards others mm. since starting this? Right, that Just those two questions. If you say yes to one of those two, chances are you're burnt <laughs> or, you're, or you're heading there. And that's it right there. That it just popped into my head as, as you were saying that, that that is a sign of burnout. And that, that is how the compassion fatigue is interwoven into it. So on that note, you sent me a note before we started. He said, I think we need to talk about the dark side of empathy. Here we are, you know, this is all Pollyanna unicorns and rainbows and, <laughs> you know, land, land of candy land and chocolate waterfalls. <laughs> I'm mix, mixing my, my metaphors here. But tell me about the dark side of empathy. Yeah. So I think this is so fascinating. We generally think of empathy and compassion as these wonderful sunshine and unicorns, rainbows, water fountain of chocolate, whatever you just said, <laughs> as we think of it as- you, Wait a second. Could you imagine get, if at work you had a water fountain that was just like chocolate came out of it? Chocolate. Mm, everybody oh. would lick it directly, like tongue straight in. It would just, be really uh, You just had to go there. You just went there. I'd, you just had to go I'd there. I'd probably do it anyway, but- <laughs> All right. All right. So the dark side of empathy. On that note, we think of empathy and compassion as healthy responses that bind people together. I don't know why I always need to evoke like a hunter-gatherer person, but since time immemorial, compassion, it has been a precursor to empathy 
It has led us to step into other people's shoes, which leads people to connect and cooperate, which is really important in society and especially in small societies to function. But there are many dark sides. So in the case of people in caring professions, doctors, nurses, whatever it may be, that includes overextending, which can harm you and harm the other patients that you need to be caring for. So you're trying to fill others' cups from an empty cup. Another example that I think is interesting is that empathy can actually lead you to hold polarized beliefs and make you less receptive to other beliefs. This is not really in medicine, but in the rest of society, because this experience of stepping into someone else's shoes is so intimate and so personal and so powerful that it can lead you to hold convictions and maybe omit the other perspectives that exist. So this all comes from the work of Fritz Breithaupt. He's a professor of cognitive science and Germanic studies at Indiana University, and he's an expert on the topic of empathy and its dark side. Another thing to consider is we are all human, and there are forces of psychology at work that are sometimes not rational, but reflect our cognitive abilities and how our minds work as humans. So a good example is compassion fade. Have you ever heard this term? Never. Not, not until two seconds ago. No. <laughs> it, it basically states that our ability to demonstrate compassion decreases with the number of sufferers. So it causes ah. this psychic numbing. So it's easy to feel compassion for little Timmy that fell down the well. But when hundreds or thousands of people are impacted by a flood or the victim of some terrible tragedy, it's really difficult to wrap your mind around suffering on that scale. A good first step is starting with introspection. So what need do you have that is not being met? That could be a creature need. You're not sleeping. You don't have good nutrition. That basic bottom of Maslow's hierarchy is not being met, which with shift work and crazy hours is pretty relatable. Next is relationships and that kind of desire for connection. So what you can do, I love how you brought this up earlier, Rob, is talk to the people who will understand. So for me, counsel and camaraderie with other EM docs is so critical and friends. So I had a really difficult patient encounter recently, and I called a trusted friend who is also an attendee or attending who would help me process what I was experiencing. Sometimes that maybe that's your spouse, maybe that's somebody who's not in medicine, but the people in medicine or medicine adjacent fields will probably have good insight into what you're talking about. And if you can have somebody else who knows what you experienced, normalize that experience, say, hey, you're not a bad doctor. You're a good doctor. And this is a normal way to feel. That can be like salve to the soul. <laughs> Your phone a friend. You're, yes. Yeah. We think about, all right, what's this high level tactic we need to have for this? It's kind of, mm. well, first off, take care of yourself. When you, you know, when you've worked four night shifts in a row, even, you know, even if you're a nocturnist, you're going to be on edge. Yeah. And we think that we can just push through it. 
we have this wrong kind of grit where we just kind of put our heads down and grind it out and grit it out. And it's like this one- resilience my way out of this yes! impossible <laughs> system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm going to resilience yeah. myself out of burnout, which is of course that, you know, my over-reliance on simply having fortitude is maybe contributing to what got me here in the first place. Yeah. So just taking a step back and thinking, all right, how do I take care of myself? Absolutely. And then I think you were alluding to lean into this. When you notice this, lean into it. Don't discount it. Don't need to be alarmed about it, but don't avoid it. And acknowledging that this is happening and how do I have agency in managing this here? I love that you mention agency, Rob, because burnout and compassion fatigue are correlated and intertwined. So we know that lack of autonomy And feeling like the world is outside of your control is a big factor in burnout. So acknowledging the potential for burnout when you experience compassion fatigue is important. And think about how can I set boundaries? What can I control in this situation that is is causing me to feel unwell? Recognize where you have power, especially if you're in a position of power. So how can you create a system that's less conducive to compassion fatigue or burnout and do that for others. That may be on a larger scale. Say you're the medical director and you advocate to fund your emergency department and staff appropriately, which makes the job more satisfying. Or oh my gosh, be- I need to pause you on that right there. Wow. Yeah. Because I, mean, I know that you are a wellness leader at your hospital. So wellness leaders, this is an actual tangible action towards clinician wellness, towards staff wellness is staffing. I hear from people all the time. If I hear one more time about a yoga class or pizza or a, module. To a module or a baseball, it's like, look, long-term Hail solution. Smoothie. I do like, but <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah, I got I, I to have a special caveat. That was, that is fantastic. Yeah. How do we upstaff? How do we allow clinicians to have input in their schedule and mm autonomy in their scheduling. It's shocking the number of docs I, I speak with that where they say, yeah, I want to have my schedule this way. And they say, nope, overburden the scheduler or nope, we do it this way or nope, you can't do it. It's like, wait, why not? This is, there are scheduling programs that literally they're just designed to do it. Mm-hmm. And these are real things that can lead to, I mean, we're not, we're talking about compassion fatigue. That's a topic, but I feel like I'm either going to go off in a diatribe or a screed or one of the two. And I'm just going to leave it at that and say, did you say a scream? Screed, S-C-R-E-E-D. And I have to say that that is an Easter egg I put into every episode, that word. And it's just, it's, it's, it's it's a long speech, you know, like (laughs) it's a tedious long speech. (laughs) A screed. And in my mind usually has a bit of a bitter delivery. But, Ooh, yeah, I gotcha. Anyway, okay. so I, I I don't want you to screed. No, well, I was about to screed on on you know <laughs> some wellness initiatives that are that are well intentioned, but perhaps not so well thought out. Some that are amazing and just do incredible work. And I think any initiative, any thought going into this is just wonderful. But there are some things which do have a major impact, and some things which don't. Another episode for us to get into, Kim. Want to talk about another note that you sent me. I had not heard this term before, and I'd I'd love if you could elaborate when we're getting into how we combat compassion fatigue. You're talking about introspection, right? What needs do you have that are not being met? Where is your agency 
your community. So action and community right there, action and community. But what about compassion? I think that's what you said, compassion, satisfaction. Yeah. What, what is that? Think of it as the antidote to compassion fatigue. So compassion satisfaction is the pleasure or satisfaction that we get from helping others. And in studies, it's protective against compassion fatigue. So ask yourself, what about your job is nourishing? How can you incorporate more of that into your practice? And how can we build systems that minimize secondary trauma that we experience because it incorporates those elements? So for me personally, it's teaching, it's mentoring residents and medical students, it's leading our residency women in EM professional development program. Those things give me energy, they give me purpose, they give me joy and meaning and a connection to the reason that I love emergency medicine. Seeing somebody perform their first lumbar puncture or central line, that's something you remember always. Or that note at the end of the year that they got in the fellowship that you wrote the letter for. Whatever it is for you, it'll be different for everybody. But connect yourself to that why. That's your compassion satisfaction. Okay, what are the things about your job that are anti-nourishing? Mm. That would be volumes, more patients to care for the, and not enough me's. I'd have to say my relationship with the EMR. Oh, there we go. I must admit, I probably overchart and spend too much time doing this, too much time doing notes especially with 2023, with the focus on MDMs that has now changed for billing purposes. So it's administrative aspects and documentation. I think that's the hardest part because it's less FaceTime with the patients, which is what you got in this to do. So here you are interacting with that every day, every mm -hmm. day. How do you approach it in a way that doesn't lead to or doesn't contribute to compassion fatigue? It's something that I'm always trying to improve, but trying to set clear boundaries with how long I'm going to work on documentation, doing things ahead of time, like dot phrases and things that are going to minimize that when I'm in the moment, prioritizing documenting a little bit, like putting in an HPI when I see patients Things like that make a difference and mean I'm not spending hours after my shift, which is time I would otherwise spend with my family or whatever else I would be doing. I feel like we may have been twins delivered 22 years apart because <laughs> I, I had a very similar experience. And for me, a big challenge for many years was pace, pace, yeah. and I worked in some really busy places. And what... I found was that when my pace was unstructured, it was overwhelming. And I, I just, I drowned, I drowned, I drowned in it. And that yeah. was, that was really a contributor to a couple of burnouts I had early in my career. And once I could structure, like it had to be very disciplined. And, and when I got tired, I sort of lost the discipline and I spin my wheels. But if I could be disciplined in my pace, so exactly what you're saying, you know, making sure the EMR is really tight 
and my, my dot phrases and I'm getting documentation down after I see a patient, like just something, just a little, just throw something down on there. Because mm -hmm. what happened with the pace is I was overwhelmed. I would stay four hours after my shifts repeatedly, regularly for years doing my chart. And this is what well, started out in the era of dictation. So you actually, you had, you had to do your chart all at once. I was just tired and unfocused. And oh it was yeah, like absolutely. Super inefficient. And so once I could put discipline and structure into that, it was, and not only in, you know, how did my flow go with seeing patients documenting, what did my documentation look like, but also how was I personally triaging patients and how was how many touches touch points did I have on a patient encounter all of those things applying structure and applying discipline turned something which was profoundly traumatic and I thought I was going to leave EM into something that's like okay I still don't love this I don't love high pay I never loved it when it got really busy I'd look at my partners they'd be like yeah finally busy but like nope. it, it was like okay I can manage this so this is just something that I do rather than something which drains me I have had the same experience. I think considering how I minimize those things, spend more face time with patients or more time doing procedures or entering a flow state, making a diagnosis, doing things that are really teaching a resident, doing all those things that are nourishing and contribute to that idea of who you are in your profession and the doctor that you want to be and don't detract from it, then that really gives you energy and recharges that compassion muscle so that after I felt like I did something important, then I'm a lot, I'm a much better version of myself to meet the suffering individual. All right, Kim, we are going to wrap it up here. Ah, oh, Kim, I'm so stoked. We finally got you on the show. Ah, what a great conversation. Thank so, you, Rob. You are welcome. And thank you. And now this could this could go in a cycle, so I'm gonna end it there. Okay. So <laughs> a never ending thank you. Luke. The never ending gratitude circle. <laughs> yes. Chakras. So <laughs> <laughs> compassion fatigue. We have described it. We talked about all this different nuance, kind of how to work with it. Obviously, you know, th this could be in a, like a three-day seminar, you know, doing all this stuff. But take home, the big take-home point, what do you want people to have in their back pocket when they conclude this podcast? I want you to take away, you're still a good doctor. This is normal to experience this, and it's because you're giving so much of yourself for your patients. I hope that you can find ways to find that compassion, satisfaction, and think about what needs you have that aren't being met. Think about that dark side of compassion and empathy and whether you're experiencing burnout or not. And I hope you just take away to show yourself some compassion along the way too. No one's immune. I've yet to meet someone who is immune to this phenomenon, you know, and it does, it does ebb and flow and hopefully talking about it normalizes the experience mm -hmm. at least to some degree. Reach out, phone a friend. There are ways to navigate this rather than saying, there's nothing I can do. This sucks. I want out. Absolutely. All right, Kim. What a delight. What a delight. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. This was great. And that is it for today. 
To learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching, to get complete show notes for this or any other episode, sign up for our newsletter, and find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Maybe not, maybe it's happening. Just head over to our website, robwarman.com. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.